Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Bootstrap Founder Podcast. My name is Avid Kahl, and I talk about how you can start, run, and sell a bootstrap business. This episode is called The Myth of the Finished Product. Let's get started. Before the internet made transferring large amounts of data cheap and easy, software used to be distributed on CDs or DVDs. For any given application, there was the golden master, a final version of the software ready to be copied millions of times. But these days are over. Every day, millions of software updates get dispatched. For many services in the bootstrap world, customers will never even notice. They'll just refresh their browser pages, and the latest version of the application will just appear. With updating being so easy, no product is ever really finished. Even when you release what you think is a feature-complete version of your product, it'll only be done for a while. There's one main reason for all software being only temporary, the changing circumstances of your customers. It can manifest in many shapes for many, many reasons, as entrepreneurial dissatisfaction with the status quo, a reaction to movements in the industry, the competitive landscape, the regulatory environment, or a reaction to changes in needs and your own understanding of your customers. Let's look into all these reasons in detail and see how being able to update your product quickly can be optimally leveraged for your bootstrap business and when not to change things. Let's first talk about entrepreneurial dissatisfaction. Every product is the result of a measurement made at a point in time. You validated your audience, your problem, and your solution. You decided on the scope of your product from that information. But that data is not static. It wasn't even complete when you went through all of those validations. In short, your analysis will always be imperfect because you don't have the full insight. There is no perfect vision into the ever-changing world of entrepreneurship. Your interpretation of what is needed to solve your customer's critical problem will be incomplete or a premise may have changed over time. What matters is what you do about it. Your vision of the product is the touchstone of what should be in your product and what shouldn't. If your vision changes, so should the product. It's a good idea to reflect on your assumptions, your analysis, and its accuracy every now and then. I recommend doing this consciously at least once a quarter as a form of continuous validation of the business, the product, and the alignment with your vision. We did this in a very informal way at Feedback Panda. Every few months, Danielle and I would sit down and talk about the feature suggestions and ideas we had come up with or had received from our customers, and we checked if anything among them was interesting for making the product better. We dismissed much more than we ever considered, and it kept the product current without it being bloated. We even removed features at times. Your product will never be finished because your audience and their problems are moving targets that you will learn to see clearer the longer you work at it. Let's talk about changing regulatory environments now. When the General Data Protection Regulation, the GDPR, passed into law in May 2018 in Europe, companies all over the world frantically added cookie consent banners and stuff like that to their websites. They started implementing data protection features into their products because all of a sudden, there was a chance they'd be fined heavily if they didn't change their products. 
we had been careful in not collecting any potentially dangerous information with Feedback Panda even before GDPR was announced as I felt we should avoid having payment information or customer address information stored in our database. I trusted that services like Stripe or Auth0 would be much more capable of securing this kind of information than I would ever be. As a result, we didn't have to do much other than adding this pesky cookie consent banner to our marketing website. In some industries, there are already extensive protocols to follow. You need to be PCI compliant when you work in payments, or you need documentation for HIPAA compliance the moment you touch medical data. There's a lot of these kind of regulatory bodies that you have to be compliant with. But some markets are relatively unregulated. When you start out, but they turn to be targeted by lawmakers eventually. We witnessed this in the Chinese education technology landscape. Our mostly North American customers were contracting for Chinese kid English companies, essentially like Uber drivers are driving for Uber, not really employees, but working full-time. When Chinese authorities decided that Chinese children could not receive after-school tutoring after 8 p.m. any longer, because parents force their kids to learn even like until midnight sometimes. And they restricted the amount of information the schools were allowed to share about the students at the same time. These Chinese kid English companies had to change their product and business models significantly. Some companies even closed because the regulation made it impossible for them to operate at a profit. So your product can never really be finished because the legal requirements and the limitations of an industry are always changing. Talk about the changing technology landscape. There are domino effects that you, that can affect your business in surprising ways. Here's another Feedback Panda example that illustrates the insane amount of dependencies and complicated interconnected parts of the software world. Let's set the stage. These Chinese kid English companies our customers worked for were using web-based technology platforms to facilitate uh, video-based face-to-face kind of teaching. Our product, Feedback Panda, integrated into these platforms using a browser extension. Everything was humming along until it didn't. In 2017, Adobe decided to end of life their Flash service or the Flash technology, a popular, I guess, multimedia software and browser plugin that's still around at this point. The maturity of web technologies like HTML5 and WebAssembly made it less and less appealing to support this kind of outdated plugin, so they decided to stop supporting Flash by the end of 2020. Consequentially, browser vendors had to react. The security implications of this decision by Adobe reached far because before the end of 2020, all major browsers would have to phase out their Flash support, as integrating software that is not receiving security updates is a giant risk for browsers, which are used by millions of people every single day and automatically update, right? So they have to supply secure technology, and if a plugin is not secure anymore, it has to go. So the team for Google Chrome set a roadmap to phase out Flash support over several years, starting in 2016 or 15, even when they heard the first kind of ideas of eventually phasing out Flash. Um, The roadmap is still available online and you can see how far back it actually reaches. Uh, One particular step along the way was disabling the Flash plugin by default in the browser in July 2019. At that point, the user of Chrome would have to reactivate Flash every single time they started their browser, which 
can be done, but it's quite the nuisance if you reboot your computer quite a bit. When this change was a few months away, the developer community started talking about it. Within the development teams of the Chinese Kid English companies, it must have made the rounds as well because all of a sudden these companies understood the complexity of their tech choices for the first time because the system they used for video calls was built on Flash. And if they didn't change anything soon, their teachers, our customers, could not reliably teach any longer and wouldn't be able to teach at all by the end of 2020 when their browser would automatically update and disable Flash support. Now, they had a few choices. One choice was to switch to a different video call technology provider, finding one that supported HTML5 video, something that would be supported continuously and that had already shown a lot of applications in, in many of the large video platforms, right? That there was already a lot of people using it at that time in 2019, obviously. YouTube was, for example. But those companies, they did something else, they did something completely surprising. The schools chose to stick with their video provider. So the problem now was the nature of evergreen browsers because they would automatically update eventually. So they, the schools went for something that we did not expect. They froze their teachers' browsers in time, essentially, by having them teach through an Electron-based application. Using Electron is like shipping a web application packaged with a browser to run it. And with that kind of package, they could stay in control of the update process, effectively freezing their teacher's Chrome version in the pre-2020 state forever. So the idea was to supply the teachers with software that would interact with the website, but in a browser that they had complete control over that wouldn't be able to update and disable Chrome, uh, sorry, Flash at any point. So they would essentially run a second Chrome on their computer just to be able to teach. Problem solved for the Chinese kid English companies, but um, they now had to release updates both to the website and the teaching application that would load their website in the old browser version, but at least they were out of the danger zone. It was additional work, but it solved their problem because they had heavily invested in this video platform partnership apparently, and they didn't want to let that one go. But for Feedback Panda, it was the opposite. It was really problematic. By moving away from a browser-based teaching portal to this Electron app-based solution, our browser integration wouldn't work anymore. Within this Electron wrapper, browser extensions could not be installed because Electron is a feature-limited uh, version of Chrome, at least when it comes to integrations. And that was a limitation that the schools chose to accept, at least, for not having to spend millions changing the video call provider. For us, it meant that a major integration into the workflow for customers was at risk. The schools were actively encouraging the teachers to teach through the app, and without having ever planned to do so, I had to start researching ways of integrating browser extensions into standalone Electron applications, something that at that point hadn't been done before, or at least, if people had done it, they hadn't spoken about it publicly anywhere. After a couple of weeks, I found a solution that would allow our customers to actually integrate with um, just how they already understood it from their browsers into the new teaching apps. This integration involved another standalone Electron-based app that I built that our customers would have to install and use. Hence, it wasn't as easy as installing a browser extension, but it was still much better to have a couple extra steps than not to use our service at all. This kind of change can happen on a schedule, like it did with Flash. 
but it could also occur just from one day to another, as it usually does when Google releases an update to its search engine algorithms and puts like whole niches out of business. Your product can never be finished because it's embedded in a world of changing technologies and you never know. Sometimes you do, but sometimes you don't. What's going to happen? Let's talk about changing customer workflows, another important change. When industries adopt new and improved practices, workflows change. There are four kinds of changes in a sector that can trigger this, and they can be differentiated along the two axes of are the core activities threatened and are the core assets threatened. So we're talking about activities and assets in an industry. First, you have to you have the one with the lowest chance of making you change your product. Uh, progressive changes in the industry. Core activities and technologies stay mostly the same over time, just minimal change happens. Think of airlines, for example, an industry that has changed very little over the last decades. If you have a pro- product that integrates with the system of the airline industry, you will not need to change it much over time. There will be changes, but you'll be you'll be aware of them because they come slowly. Second, there's creative change. In the movie industry, technology gets improved because there's a desire to become better and create things that are new and exciting. New technology can change whole areas of the industry really quickly, and that adoption comes with a change of how things are getting done. Assets are being developed and improved, leaving most of the activities mostly the same. I think in the movie industry, a good example is the SaaS end crawl providing end of movie credits like the the assets there the kinds of how credits are done that is changed but the fact that a movie needs credits the activity is still the same and so that's a creative change in the industry that this particular startup actually hooked into and when only core activities are threatened we call this an intermediating change here the fragility of interpersonal relationships leads to changes in how things are done look at how car dealerships used to work and how much that has changed through technology and the ubiquity of information right the power dynamics of a sales relationship have flipped and so have the processes in the industry the most dangerous kind of change to your product is radical change in the industry. Here, both activities and assets are threatened and everything can change. If you've ever seen a rotary phone, did you ever wonder what happened to the businesses that produced them? Or remember travel agencies? When people book vacations today, they rarely need to leave the house, right? Travel agents have to approach marketing and sales much differently today that people just don't walk by the travel agency anymore. If you have a product that helps travel agents make sales or coordinate travel plans, you will have to react to seismic shifts in the industry and provide solutions to the problems of today, not of the problems or to the problems of the past. Your product is never really finished because changes in the industry that you serve will change the workflows of your customers that you serve too. So that forces you to adapt your product. Let's talk about something that you rarely ever talk about, and that is the changes in the economic impact of a feature. Uh, There's also the possibility that a change to your business or product has significant side effects that will turn something that worked into something harmful for your business. The example here, the good example, is Bear Metrics. 
when they introduced a freemium plan, because that illustrates this kind of economic impact, change of an economic impact very clearly. They made much of the functionality of the paid subscription levels available to a free account in the hopes of finding more leads and have users see the value proposition more clearly. Soon after they launched the freemium plan, the free users started to outnumber paid users and the amount of data that Bearmetrics had to process, all this incoming Stripe webhooks and the data from these accounts started causing performance and database issues. Customer support was doubly affected. There were all these new freemium customers to support and the paying members of Bearmetrics needed help solving the problems caused by the performance issues. So that was chaos. And it was a catastrophe at that point. That churn went up, the revenue didn't hit the expected goals, and they just called it a failed experiment. But for both the freemium attempt and for turning it off eventually, they had to change their product. Ignoring the changes that they had to make as they ran into their scaling issues that came from these actual changes, that is product work that was not in the initial vision, but needed to be grafted on at a later stage. If a feature of your product turns from a lead magnet into a churn multiplier like this, you need to remove it. If a feature you previously considered to be a bad idea turns into a potential goldmine, you need to add it. So your product will never be finished because the economic impact of certain features is dependent on the choices you make after or before implementing them. Let's quickly talk about bugs, the kind of dysfunctions you never meant to create but still have to correct. No piece of software will ever be error-free because it's built by fallible beings, like me, operated by fallible beings on complex machines, any kind of system administrator, and consumed by fallible beings haphazardly operating even more sophisticated machinery. That would be your customers. There will be glitches and there will be errors. While it's every developer's ambition to squash these things before they hit the production systems, some will sneak through and you will have customers reach out and report them often in a very agitated state. I've learned to use this as a brand building exercise. When people reported bugs in the Feedback Panda interface, I would calmly thank them for the report tell them that I was right on it, fix the bug right there and then, and immediately tell them that it was fixed right after deploying the new version of a service. At times, particularly in the beginning of the business, this took less than 30 minutes from the customer service chat until the fixed version was deployed. This reliably resulted in amazement and in some cases even converted the customer from mere user of a product to one of the loudest evangelists we ever had. Being heard is one thing, but being listened to and ma making something better is another. If you can give your customers this feeling that they feel valued, they feel understood, and they will become your allies and public defenders. Many of those customers would rush to our aid whenever we had technical trouble, telling people on social media about their experience with us and that they knew we would do everything in our power to restore the service. This gave us precious time to actually fix the problems instead of talking to customers on a variety of Facebook groups. With every bug you fix, your product becomes better and hopefully as long as you don't introduce new bugs by fixing the old ones. Let's talk about three ways to think about features because we always talk about product and features and the changing things. So I personally see three distinct approaches to features and one of them is overlooked. You can add features, you can change features and you can remove them. That would be the overlooked one. Most founders love to add new features as they often equate features with the potential of generating value. 
whenever a new customer needs get discovered, you add a feature. When you want to start value nurturing your customers, showing them how much they benefit from your product, you add a feature that does that. When you want to turn your product into a network effect engine, you add a sharing feature. Founders also are happy to change and adjust feature when ne- features when needed. When customer needs change, you change your features. When your business is moving up market or down market, you adjust your functionality. Only the fewest entrepreneurs are happy to remove features from their products. Even when customers don't need a particular activity or feature anymore, the feature usually is left untouched. When a feature was built to solve a need that turns out not to even exist, it often stays in the product. Even when a feature is clearly damaging in terms of economic impact, we don't remove it immediately. Why is that? What makes us so hesitant to remove what we can see isn't working? It's the thing that makes an entrepreneur great. Boundless optimism here is just applied the wrong way and mixed with an unhealthy dose of the sunk cost fallacy. That fallacy states that we perceive something as more valuable than it really is when we've spent considerable resources in creating or attaining it. We would rather see it through till the end, whatever that means, instead of counting our losses and getting rid of it. If you have a feature that no customer uses, remove it. I did that with a very specific button in our interface that we put into the product as a means for our first couple users to be able to migrate their data from before we had integrations into their online classrooms, into the system that had integrations. The button in question would allow them to assign a unique ID to a record that we couldn't detect before the integration, but would automatically assign and use it when the teacher had the browser extension installed. After a few weeks of introducing the integration, all teachers were effectively migrated. Still, it took me months to remove that button. And when I removed it, one single user immediately complained about it being gone. In an utterly incomprehensible way, they had started using our product with their own self-designated IDs for their records, which had no impact on our system, but was a means for them to add more information to their data. When we removed the option to change that information, they started complaining. And it gave us really good insight into how some people might be using our product in extremely unexpected ways. Removing features will do this. It'll unearth the hidden outliers, the users deviating from the conventional path. And it's also going to be quite hilarious because you do not expect how people might be using your system if you give them a lot of options, at least. If you have a system that does one thing super well and has no like little features all, all around, then people won't really be able to deviate much. But as your product grows, and particularly once you build integrations and like migration paths, you will have these weird little things happening. If you have a feature that is damaging to the value of your business, remove it too, right? At some point, I envisioned that we should be able to show each teacher extremely detailed statistical information about the data right on everybody's dashboard. And then I built that. But with thousands of teachers having thousands of records, the calculations involved were so resource intensive, not unlike the bare metrics example that I've mentioned before. I deployed the first version of this and it immediately caused so much trouble with the database. There were performance glitches, there was timeouts, there was like you were aggregating data about all the data of all the teachers at all times. There were 
like transaction logs and things that you really don't want to have happen to a production system. So I had to cut back on that and displaying this information on the dashboard. And I had to move it into a separate component very quickly that would only load and calculate data when a user requested it deliberately. So a couple hours after I released this first catastrophic version, the crisis was averted. But this can happen. Finally, if you're building a network effect-based product and you find that a feature discourages your users from participating in the network, remove it. This friction can severely impede the growth potential of your product because you want people to build out network effects. Remove all obstacles and extra steps that keep your customers from engaging in network building activities. Put it right there. Right? We had at some point the sharing feature, even though people knew what the sharing features were of our product, we still put them right on the dashboard for everybody to see, just to have this kind of be in the mind of our users to at least give them the opportunity to always see that they could contribute to the network. It's very important. While you be adding and changing features more than removing them, particularly in the early stages of your business, prepare to eventually remove features and avoid becoming too attached. A button is a button. A component is a component, right? It's, it's not the end of the world. I know it hurts to remove something you spend a lot of time on, but you'd rather have a slim and focused product than a behemoth that does a thousand things, but none of them well. And that brings me to the final section here, the kind of finished you never want to see. Because the only time when your software is actually finished is when it has precisely zero users and no changes to respond to. And that's when your business has failed. That will be the day when you can stop looking at your market and your customers' needs. And any other day is an opportunity to improve your product. So your product will never be finished. It'll need to adapt to things within and without your control. Leverage the fact that it's easier than ever to deploy a new version of your product quickly and give your customers the best experience you can provide. So that's the article. Let me talk about two experiences. I already hinted at a couple of episodes from the Feedback Panda times that revolve around the product, but let me start with a different thing here. I used to work for another company, a company I co-founded with a couple of people here in Berlin that is uh, was at that point focused on providing local food from outside of the city into the city. And we went about building the product in a very organized way, but we completely forgot to actually validate it with our customers. And since we've been talking a lot about features in this episode today, I kind of want to point out that features do not solve all your problems because we were so focused on building features. We built an online marketplace and we had search functionality and we built in tagging and we built in image upload and all these wonderful things but we never validated the product with the customers because there were no customers. So we built this whole thing for a phantom audience that we never validated a product with because we thought building more features would get us customers. But we lacked the right marketing channels at that point. We didn't talk to the right people that would eventually use the product. So it was a, 
it was really not a smart way of approaching features because we've forgotten at that point to do all the validation of the audience, of the critical problem and of the problem solution fit prior to building the product. We started with the product as so many entrepreneurs do because that's the thing that is closest to the idea and the vision that we had in the beginning. So when I talk about features and adding and changing and removing them, that all comes way after you've validated that you're actually talking to the right people, that you're solving the problem for the right people, that you're solving the right problem for the right people, and that you have a solution that is actually correctly solving the problem for those people. I say this because um, I feel that had we done this back then, we would have had a much clearer insight into what our customers really needed. And it was a two-sided marketplace, so we should have done this twice even, both with the farmers that were selling the product and with the inner city urban consumers that we assumed would use our product. So do this before you jump into trying to build out features. And talking about Feedback Panda again, we had a lot of customer conversations where people, once we had customers, which was great and better than uh, the other product before, I guess, but where people would reach out to us and tell us how they use a product and what they would suggest for new features and other integrations. And like I said, we always acknowledged it. We always put it somewhere, but we rarely acted on these kind of things. Sometimes it was clear. This is an amazing idea, right? When people need a, like, I don't know, an edit button somewhere in a different location to just kind of skip four different steps instead of like going back to the dashboard, going into the other section, clicking edit, having an edit button right next to, I don't know, like the student um, information inside your feedback template or something like this in the product, we would put it there because it made a lot of sense. But that was, that was often not the case. Often people just wanted convenience things that made no sense for the actual usability of the product. So we just, we always acknowledged and rarely acted. We wanted to be a scalpel and not an axe, right? We wanted to be precise, solve one problem well, still get integrated into the workflow of our customers in a good way, but not overcommit when it came to features. Because we certainly didn't want to have a bloated piece of software in the end. And for the things that were required for some teachers or for some of our customers, but by far not for all of them to pretty much migrate data over from one transitional stage like before the integration, after the integration. Uh, there was this weird problem with browser extensions and Safari. It's kind of hard to build a good browser extension in the Safari browser. So while all of our customers that were using Firefox or Chrome or even, um, God forbid, uh, Microsoft Edge had an integration, that actually worked for them and integrated into their classrooms, all the people that would be on a Mac and only use Safari really never had one. So for years, they would use a product or for, I guess, one year and a half at the max. And then they would try to use it the same way that all our other customers would, but they couldn't because they didn't have the IDs that we would kind of scrape from the teaching portals to make this more usable. So at some point when we launched the browser extension Electron app thing that I talked about earlier, they now had an opportunity to use the browser extension because unlike Safari that they used before exclusively, the teaching app was built on Chromium, 
right? So there was a Chrome browser running all of a sudden, which they had didn't want to do before. They didn't want to install it or they had problems with it due to its memory consumption, all these kinds of things. Now, all of a sudden they had one and all of a sudden we could integrate with it. But that left us with a problem because these teachers, they had added thousands of rows to the database. They had used this for a year often and longer without having these kind of unique IDs that we all of a sudden could extract. So the data was kind of half correct because you have to understand the browser extension would read the unique ID of a student, the unique ID of a course, the unique ID of um, the, the lesson, all these kind of things from the teaching portal. And if it wasn't already in your database, it would create a new record, which would lead to duplicate records for the customers that had done this without the unique IDs before. So we now had this wave of Safari users that all of a sudden had unique records. And we would need to deal with that. So for those people, we build another option to make it easy to do this migration, but it was a option they needed to switch configuration on for. They needed to go to the settings menu, they needed to click a thing, and after that, it would work that particular way, making it easier to integrate or making it easier to transition with the integration. That left us um, with the experience that this is actually a good way of doing things like this for parts of your audience, where you have configuration for advanced features that has a default state of off. So it's available to everybody, but most people will never use it, likely because they don't know it's there or because they don't need it. So our customers that had this particular problem could just, they would reach out to us or we would send them an automated message through Intercom targeting all our Safari-based customers, which we could read from there because this metadata that Intercom fetches. And we would tell them, we would tell them, okay, if you have integration trouble, go to your settings menu, turn this on, and it's going to be fine. And it worked. So having features that are advanced hidden behind configuration and having it off by default is also an option to really focus on only showing the relevant components in your user interface to all of your customers and the advanced and special ones to a smaller part of your customers only when they need it. So this has been really, really helpful for Feedback Panda to both stay the scalpel to solve this core problem of our audience of having to deal with student feedback really well, but also just deal with this kind of stuff that just comes up from having a changing landscape, both on a technological level, on the regulatory level, or just from changing needs in the workflow of your customers. All right. I think that is enough for talking about the myth of the finished product. It is clear, at least to me, that no product is ever finished. And unlike the golden master, your product will always receive new versions. You will always have to react to changes. And that's fine. And that's actually enjoyable because that shows that your business is adapting. Because a business that doesn't adapt anymore is dead, at least eventually. Thank you for listening to the Bootstrap Founder Podcast today. You can find me on Twitter at Arvid Kahl, A-R-V-I-D-K-A-H-L. And you can check out the blog at thebootstrapfounder.com. If you want to support me and the Bootstrap Founder Podcast, please leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts and wherever you subscribe to this podcast. There have been a couple over the last days and it was really, really nice. I'm extremely grateful for the things that people have been saying about the podcast. It is uh, 
really, really sweet. So thank you for that. This kind of review will help other founders and founders to be to find this podcast and learn more about starting and running and selling their bootstrap business. So thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day. Bye-bye.